This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, May 13th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. The Iran deal, as far as it goes, appears to be working to prevent Iran from pursuing nuclear weapons, but that doesn't mean the United States won't stumble into greater conflict. Cato Institute foreign policy scholars Emma Ashford and Ben Friedman discuss how the U.S. should go about avoiding unnecessary fights in the region. The Iranian nuclear deal, based upon our discussion, uh, Ben, with uh, with John Glazer, is that there is some evidence that the Iran deal is working, uh, going just by the rhetoric being used by U.S. officials about what kind of threats Iran poses in the region and uh, around the world. But that Iran deal doesn't solve other problems that the United States has with Iran. So what what are those other problems and you know where might the US be headed even with a working Iran deal in place? Yeah, the purpose of the Iran deal is very limited to uh, control, limit, stop uh, Iran's nuclear weapons development. But to many people, myself included, I think there's a, a broader purpose that's not articulated directly by the deal's advocates because they don't want to oversell it, which is to keep the United States out of another stupid war uh, in that part of the world or keep the United States from bombing Iran. Uh, and there's a lot of hawks in this town who would, I think, like to have a war with Iran or at least uh, wouldn't go far to avoid it. And I think that would be potentially disastrous and so one virtue of the deal by stopping the program, the weapons program uh, is to make that war less likely uh, but there's another virtue which is just to improve uh, relations more broadly but there's still problems. There's problems with Iran giving money to Hezbollah. There's problems with Iran at least perceived problems with them supporting Houthi rebels in Yemen. So it's, it's not as if relations overnight turned peaceful and warm. This was one of the um, sort of debates over the nuclear deal itself was um, it actually was just a non-proliferation deal. And the Obama administration was fairly clear publicly that they believed it was just a non-proliferation deal. It wasn't about improving our relations overall with Iran. And, and you know, I think everybody understood that the Obama administration hoped that this would actually improve our broader relations with Iran. But the debate over the nuclear deal so often touched on all of these issues that didn't actually have anything to do with non-proliferation. So even today, more than a year after the deal has been signed and, and implemented, you know, you have people pointing to Iran's testing of ballistic missiles and saying, well, you know, that violates the deal and actually doesn't technically violate the deal. Maybe it violates the spirit of the deal, but it doesn't violate the letter of the deal. And then you have people pointing to, as, as Ben mentioned, some of Iran's activities uh, throughout the region and saying, well, you know, again, Iran is is violating the, the, the agreement that it set up with the US. And, and no, the agreement never really dealt with those things. So the questions that policymakers really have to wrestle with now is how do you deal with those other things? So do you want to try and improve the relationship with Iran um, by perhaps setting up other diplomatic 
agreements? Or do you want to take a more hard line in the aftermath of the nuclear deal? And that's the way Congress seems to be going, that they're going to put on more sanctions, that they're going to help to arm other countries against Iran and take a harder line in the region. So it, it, it seems like the Iran nuclear deal is, look, if we have one thing that we can get Iran to do, this is it. And let's not try to bite off too much of the of the apple. And if we have uh, two things that we could do, um, Congress has decided we need to get tough in all these other areas. Yeah. And, and actually, you know, I honestly think this was where the Obama administration, they really took a risk trying to get the nuclear deal. Um, and it was very difficult to do it. And they only did it by taking all of these other extraneous things out of the equation. Iran's funding for Hezbollah, Iran's funding for other rebels. They just ignored all of that and focused on the nuclear deal. And the upside to that is that we have an Iran today that is not headed for a nuclear weapon. Um, the downside is, of course, that political parties here in the US and domestic politics gets to play a role in this debate. And so instead of the nuclear deal starting to improve our relationship with Iran, what we've got is this backlash. And with Republicans in power in both houses and in the presidency, um, a harder line on Iran seems pretty much inevitable. There are a lot of risks to that, though. Ben, what, is the, what, are, the, what are the specific risks associated with taking a hard line with a nuclear deal in place? Besides the obvious risk of ruining uh, the deal and thus reigniting Iran's program, its nuclear weapons program, uh, one big risk is that you embolden or help politically the hardliners in Iran. There's an election coming up next week, presidential election in Iran, and uh, the criticism made by the hardliners of the uh, incumbent is that he's been too nice to uh, accommodating with the United States and that the deal didn't work very well economically for Iran. So I think it's beyond the, that election in general, it's better to look at Iran as not a unified state, but one where the, the hardliners are always competing with more moderate elements who in the long term could move that country were they to be successful in a, in a direction towards you know being a more normal accommodating state. But when, when we stand up and bang the table and threaten Iran, it, it only uh, slows that down, I think. Not that we have control over what happens there, but we can be better or worse. With respect to the, the people in Iran, what is the opportunity of trying to have a better relationship with that country? This is a country that we have had I mean, strained or even non-existent relationship with for 40 years. Um, and actually, a lot of young people in Iran today, they were upset, uh, were upset before the election of Hassan Rouhani, Rouhani several years ago. They were upset by the lack of economic opportunities. Um, they were upset by the lack of political opportunities. A lot of them actually admire the U.S. in contrast to some other Middle Eastern countries where we've been pretty heavily involved over the last couple of decades. And so in Iran, as, as Ben mentions, there are more moderate elements. Now, they're not what we perhaps would consider moderate or liberal, but they are more moderate and they would be happy to see a better relationship with the US, a more normalized relationship with the US, one in which perhaps they can trade more openly, perhaps political rights get expanded. And so these are all things um, that can happen if we improve the relationship with Iran. But if we don't, and we take a much more hard 
hardline approach, then the hardliners inside Iran itself, they're the ones who benefit from this. They get to tell the people, well, the U.S. is responsible for all your problems um, and we're here to save you. There's another aspect of this, which Emma can speak to better than me, but for a long time, the United States perceived that we had to be close to our Gulf Arab allies for reasons having to do with what was loosely and badly defined as energy security. Uh, now, uh, with energy production changing to the extent that was ever a problem, it's less of one. And uh, we're de facto aligned with Iran given what we're doing in Iraq and Syria where they're on the same side as us. So it becomes increasingly unnecessary, I think, for us for a whole variety of reasons beyond oil to be so closely aligned with the Gulf allies or Gulf states who are uh, at odds with the Iranians and increasingly sort of natural for the United States to at least be less antagonistic towards Iran since we given them what are essentially hostages if they would like to turn the tides on us and start attacking U.S. forces in Syria and Iraq. I mean, we've put ourselves in a position where it makes a lot of sense just in a pure military standpoint to uh, at least have a decent relationship with the Iranians while we're busy trying to defeat ISIS and, and make Iraq into a stable country still. Where the Trump administration seems to be going with this um, is closer ties to those Gulf Arab states. Um, Trump has announced that he'll take his first foreign trip. He'll actually go to Saudi Arabia first. Um, most presidents go to Canada first, so this is definitely a change. Um, and he's going to go to the Saudis. The Saudis have been working very hard to build a better relationship with this administration. They, they had a very strained relationship with the Obama White House. Um, and Trump is doing a lot of things that the Saudis and other Gulf states really like. He is promising to take a harder line on Iran. He's promising perhaps more military aid for the Saudi war in Yemen. And that's something that is discussed in the context of Iran. But Iran is really only a marginal player in Yemen. So that's much more about Saudi domestic politics and about their desire to see a, a stable Yemen that's uh, responsive to their government. So all of these issues come together. And the way Trump and indeed members of Congress seem to be going is implicating these Gulf Arab states in putting perhaps new sanctions on Iran, um, taking more military actions in Yemen and elsewhere, all of these things that will sour that relationship. Is there a, a way to thread the needle and give comfort to our, our quote unquote friends in Saudi Arabia and still uh, develop a relationship, a, a more positive or at least less negative relationship with Iran? This is the needle that the Obama administration started to thread, um, and they weren't entirely successful. I think the war, the, the U.S. support for the war in Yemen is kind of the classic example of this. It was mostly to reassure the Saudis after the nuclear deal. But Obama, in being willing to actually take that first step and negotiate with Iran, did start to thread that needle. And I think what he realized, a lot of his advisors realized, and something I completely concur with, is that eventually we're going to end up in a situation in the Middle East where we want to have good relations with all of the major players. And that includes the Saudis, that includes the Iraqis, but it also includes the Iranians. And so we need to start that process of transition. What Trump is promising would take us back a step. And I think that insofar as there's needles to be thread, you got to thread them. But why don't we throw away the needle and get out of the region, stop trying to manage 
the stability and the politics of the Persian Gulf region, which is full of horrible moral compromises and dangerous alliances or quasi-alliances. I mean, in the long term, we don't have to be good friends with either the Saudis or the Iranians. We don't want to – I would like to avoid a war with the Iranians and anyone else in the region. But I mean, it's this sort of insistence that there's great missions for the United States military to serve by being permanently deployed in the Middle East and sort of managing these relationships that gets us in this dangerous and uh, morally fraught situation where we're making these impossible choices between bad regimes on on, uh, one hand and worse regimes on the other. Ben Friedman and Emma Ashford are foreign policy scholars at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>